Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This morning, I want to introduce you to a new voice, Prithvi. Hi, Justin. It's really nice to speak with you. And yeah, thank you for having me. So Prithvi has just joined Tech Policy Press as program manager, and he's going to be engaging with our community, engaging with the a growing number of contributors we have on the site and thinking about new ways to uh, activate that community. And Prithi, I wanted to talk to you this morning a little bit about one new program we announced last week, which is a fellows program. This is actually something that I've been really excited about working on, excited to sort of be part of it and hope to kind of get more voices to expand and diversify the discourse on Tech Policy Press. So there are two categories of fellows that we're looking for. That's right. So there's one category of the reporting fellows, which we envision more in line of sort of people who have prior experience in journalism and writing uh, pieces at the intersection of technology and democracy. And the second track is the sort of information fellows. So information fellows, we're looking to have them contribute to both policy and legislative tracking. Is that right? That is right. Okay, we've got a couple of information sessions coming up on these fellowships for anybody that might be listening. This podcast will be published on August 13th. There's one on August 14th, but then again, one on September the 5th. Uh, So where can folks find that information and find the application? All of the details on the application, including the links to the information sessions are all on the website. So that's bit.ly slash tech policy press fellowship. Uh, That's all one word. And I think they'll find all the information they need. If you're using Google, at least it's a search engine, you can simply Google tech policy press fellowship and you'll find it there. But as Prithvi mentioned, that's a short link. Bitly slash tech policy press fellowship is one way to find that. So Prithvi, before you go, I have to take advantage of your knowledge of one other topic. Yeah. So... You're from India? I was brought up in Mumbai, so spent most of my time in Mumbai. And I also spent significant amounts of time a little outside Delhi, where I did my undergraduate. So yeah, I've kind of lived in a few different places in India. Today's podcast discussion is all about a piece of legislation that has advanced in India in the last week. And so for some of our listeners who aren't perhaps particularly familiar with how the Indian parliamentary system works. Mm -hmm. I thought we might just quickly ask you to kind of give us the basics. India's a parliamentary system. Uh, What that essentially means is that we have this parliament, that's the sort of supreme legislative body of the Indian Republic. And the sort of Indian parliament consists of two houses. You have the lower house and the upper house, and we call them the Lok Sabha and the Rajya Sabha. Uh, And we have the sort of president as the nominal head of the parliament. So we have the lower house or the Lok Sabha, and they're elected directly by the Indian people. It is very similar to the sort of House of Representatives in America. And then we have the sort of upper house or the Rajya Sabha. Now, the big difference is that these members are not directly elected by the Indian people. They're sort of indirectly elected, uh, which means that the members of the Legislative Assembly who are directly elected essentially nominate these members for the upper house. And that happens through a system of sort of proportional representation. We've got these two houses. How does a bill get proposed? 
Right. So for a bill to get proposed, you have a member of parliament and this could be someone who's either in the Lok Sabha or the lower house or in the upper house of the Rajya Sabha. They draft this bill and which can either be a change to existing laws or sort of new law. The bill is then sort of submitted to the relevant ministry. In the case of the bill that you're going to be discussing in this episode, the ministry is the electronics and information technology ministry. Then you have the first reading of the bill. You have the second reading. You have a third reading and then you have voting, right? What happens after the bill gets approval in that process? The bill is presented either in the Lok Sabha or the Rajya Sabha. Normally, it's presented in the house where it was first initially proposed, right? Or initially drafted. However, there's an important caveat. If it's a financial bill or what we call a money bill, anything to do with sort of financial issues, that can only be initiated in the lower house of parliament. But any other bill that's not a financial bill can be initiated in either house. And I think that's sort of important to, to specify. But once the bill is approved, you have a, a vote, really. And the bill that you're going to be discussing passed through a voice vote. And then it's finally assented by the president. And then it's made into a law. So important to point out, I suppose, for the listener that may not be aware that essentially one party has a supermajority in India. This is extremely important, Justin, that right now in India, the Bharatiya Janata Party, that's uh, essentially the party in power and the central government does have uh, an extremely strong control over the parliament. And as you'll even discuss in, in the podcast episode, that a lot of sort of authority is being centralized and there is a sort of concerted effort to kind of take power away from sort of individual states and concentrate that power to the center. And one interesting statistic for your listeners that kind of can frame what we mean when we say that India is kind of having a different moment, say to the US, is that in 2019, when the BJP government won the re-election or won the general election, it was the single largest single party majority in, in the history of India, right? I mean, it was, it was a massive, massive mandate for the Modi government to kind of take power or take control and that tells you a lot about what the situation or the political context in India is. And I think that has implications on how any of these bills are drafted, the priorities they have, and their potential implications on, on citizens of the country. The themes that will play out in the conversation we're about to have, as you say, both extraordinary uh, popularity of the BJP, and then also the centralization of power, and I suppose, safe to say, comes with it concerns about the future of the health of Indian democracy as a result of it. Prithvi, thank you so much for giving us those basics. Thank you so much, Justin. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to talk to three experts in India about the Digital Personal Data Protection Bill 2023, which gives the government new powers to manage the processing of personal data. My name is Aditya Akrawal. I'm an independent technology journalist based out of New Delhi. I'm Kamesh Shekhar. I lead the Privacy and Data Governance Vertical at the Dialogue. It's a think tank based out of Delhi. I'm Pratik Wagre, the Policy Director at the Internet Freedom Foundation, which is a digital rights advocacy organization based in India. I am so pleased to have the three of you on this podcast uh, to talk about developments in India uh, around its uh, data protection bill. I have had the opportunity myself to visit India only twice in my life. One of those times was this year, where I did have the opportunity to meet both Pratik and Aditi in person. Kamesh, I'm 
sadly missed you on this trip, but hopefully next time I'll have the opportunity. But Aditi, I want to start with you as the journalist, the reporter on this call. Can you just tell folks what has happened over the last week? So the big headline is that India's privacy bill, or as the government would want us to believe, just the part of the bill that focuses on digital personal data, that cleared both houses of the Indian parliament. And it took the Indian parliament less than two hours to clear it in both houses. So it was introduced last week on August 3 in the lower house, that's the Lok Sabha. Then the discussion happened on Monday and it took them 51 minutes to clear without any amendments. Then yesterday in the upper house, that's the Rajya Sabha, it took them another 68 minutes to clear it. What's to be noted is that in both cases, the opposition of this country wasn't there in either of the houses. So this was passed with unanimous voice votes. Ironically enough, for the Digital Personal Data Protection Bill, we won't ever have data about how many members of parliament voted for the bill and how many voted against it. But at least looking at the videos or the live stream of the parliament, it passed unanimously. Now, a week before that, on July 26th, there's something called the Standing Committee on Communications and Information Technology. It's a parliamentary committee that has members from both the houses. They passed a report approving the 2022 version of the bill, which was released for public consultation by the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology of India in November 2022. However, what was interesting about it, that all guys read that the parliamentary committee has approved the bill. And they seem to suggest it was the latest version of the bill, which would go before the members, before the open house. But what was approved was the 2022 version of the bill. And before the uh, bill was introduced in parliament last Thursday, nobody had seen a 2023 copy. So this 2023 copy is vastly different from the 2022 version of the bill. Yet no public consultation has happened on it. So some of the key differences are how exemptions are imagined, how the concept of processing personal data without consent, which then turned to deemed consent and is now in a section called legitimate users, uh, has been reimagined. What has happened to the Right to Information Act, which is the equivalent of the American Freedom of Information Act. So all those things haven't undergone enough consultation. Mesh, I want to come to you. You penned an analysis of the personal data protection bill, which compared the 22 version to the 23 version. And also, I think, fairly clearly laid out all of the various new authorities that are created by this legislation. Can you give us the basics? What are the new bodies, authorities, titles, et cetera, that are created for government officials and for companies? That's a great question, specifically speaking about the new bodies that have been created. It's like two things which is significantly out there is that we will be having a data protection board and we will be having an appellate tribunal. So just first coming to the data protection board itself, this is not an authority that the India is going to be forming. It's an adjudicatory body which has been re-emphasized by ministers and re-emphasized in the bill as well that they're just going to be adjudicating the complaints and other grievances which comes to them. One of the key difference within the 2023 version is that this like last time, 22 version has like Aditi mentioned, there was no clarity in terms of how the composition is going to be and etc. and stuff. Though they've given a little bit of like 
direction in terms of what's the term of office, removal and composition and et cetera and stuff, the functions of the data protection board has been significantly diluted in the recent version, where it is nothing related near to the authority, which was actually part of the 2019 version, which is the personal data protection bill itself. So why is this distinction is very important is because like there were like key functions like awareness building, giving advices to the state government or the central government who are the biggest data fiduciaries in India in terms of handling data. And these kinds of like key functions, which which were part of the data protection authorities perimeter has been now removed. Moving on to the next aspect of the appellate tribunal, as Aditi already mentioned, there's like a significant change from the 2022 to 2023 is that there is an appellate tribunal where you can actually appeal on the board's decisions to the tribunal. But here the concern is that this has been like referred to the telecom regulators tribunal, which is the TDSAT in India. The key problem here, which we actually like face would be that is like, like the pluralistic aspect of India as like different data fiduciaries and data principles and their concerns are so different. So when TDSAT is already like looking into telecom as well as IT, putting another pressure over the same appellate tribunal might have like capacity concerns. Plus like data protection is like in a niche like a topic and um, having a TDSAT kind of like an appellate tribunal to take such a you know a role might actually we will also find you know technical capacity issues there. For some of my listeners who are in the U.S. who are in Europe, uh, perhaps um, let me ask you a question just about how this thing stacks up against perhaps what some folks think of as the gold standard for data protection legislation, the GDPR. How would you describe it vis-a-vis GDPR? This bill is a little bit significantly little different from what the other counterparts have done, which has been also flagged by a lot of uh, experts recently also. Comparing this with like GDPR itself is that is like GDPR, I would say that as a legislation has been uh, very much on the side of a lot of data protection, but like here with, with what the the premises as the bill has been within India is that like how can we actually balance both privacy as a right as well as like how can we actually unlock the potentials that the data actually could provide. So can give some quite quick examples there itself is that the cross-border data transfer aspect which is like one of the key aspects when it comes to GDPR because like the strums we all know. So in India's case we have evolved very significantly where maybe we started from like a place where it was data localization, a hard data localization. Now we have come to a place where the bill states that you can transfer the data to anywhere unless the government comes and says, hey, this particular country may be not through the notification. So that itself is like a significant like a difference from like what the GDPR does in terms of adequacies and et cetera and stuff. Still, like we think there is going to be some hope there, but that is not very clear within the bill. But at this moment, data transfers can happen. So also, I think like giving a little bit in the in terms of like international aspect itself is that is like India is also moving towards like a sectoral data localization because the same provision on the cross-border data transfer also speaks about 
how they actually acknowledge the sectoral regulations. And some of the sectoral regulators in India, your RBI, which is the central bank, and the insurance regulators already have data localization in place for like certain functions of the financial services. So they have acknowledged that will also like apply. So this is like a little bit near to what Australia does. If I'm not wrong, like Australia has certain level of like data localization for health data. It's similar, if I have to compare it with the global benchmarks, these are like some of the key areas which comes into the picture. Pratik. I know we tend to sometimes refer to it and I've seen a lot of conversations calling it the privacy bill. And I think one of our perspective has also been that as the name suggests, it's a digital data protection bill. Digital personal data protection bill, Aditi pointed that out. If you look at the preamble of the bill, it curiously starts with the phrase, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just read the first line, right? which says, to provide for the processing of digital personal data in a manner that recognizes both the right of individuals to protect their personal data and then need to balance it with, with, with other things, right? So if, so if you look at that, right, if you, and if you just were to judge it slightly based on where it's prioritizing things, you could one could infer that the processing of data is, is up there, right? As Kamesh pointed out, that GDPR takes a more data protection approach. My assessment of this is that it takes a more data processing approach. You could even call it the personal digital, the digital personal data processing bill, right? The other thing, just broadly in terms of approach, is that GDPR is pretty prescriptive in a lot of ways. Now, yes, that comes with with some trade-offs, and there are, I think, legitimate conversations to be had about how prescriptive GDPR is. But I think with this bill, we've we seem to have gone the other the other extreme in the sense that it's pretty light on on specifics, right? Term that they use is saral which is Hindi for simple, and that expands into, I think, simple, actionable, rational, and I'm forgetting what the last is, accessible. I, I may have flipped the order around, but broadly, that's it. And the idea is that, look, the, it's going to be principles-based regulation, and we'll be able to move in a nimble manner through, through rulemaking, right? And that, to me, is concerning because if you zoom out, it's part of the broader picture of how we're seeing technology legislation evolve in India. In the guise of being simple, you're losing specifics, you're also losing safeguards. That is something that is not clear to me in the sense that the, the goal is, yes, it should be understandable. It shouldn't be something that only lawyers can understand. That's a laudable goal. Where I differ is that it, I don't see that as being mutually exclusive with having uh, safeguards in there or, or, or specificity or clarity on, on, on a lot of things. Right? It, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's vague. And, and in that sense, what also happened is that uh, the bill has identified 25 plus one matters for rulemaking. And I'm saying 25 plus one because there are 25 that are somewhat specific and one that says, we'll, we'll decide what else we want, to, we want to do, right? And what that broadly means is that at this point, a lot of the specifics we don't know in terms of how, how they'll work. Uh, and because it'll happen through rulemaking, there is a lot of discussion and control that with the executive, right? Not clear at this stage whether those will go through a consultation process. And the consultation process around this is a whole other thing. We should probably get into that at, at some point as well. But I think that's an interesting contrast I, I did want to point out in terms of the approach of framing this legislation, because I also see it being a broader uh, path in terms of how future le- legislation, especially technology legislation in India, is going to be drafted. And the concern is that there's a lot of discretion with the executive. Well, you've already tipped your hand, I suppose, to 
your views on this or IFS views, your organization, fair to say, disappointed. You have written in its present form, the DP, DPB does not sufficiently safeguard the right to privacy and must not be enacted. Fair to say IFF was opposed to this. In terms of the failures that you see, one thing that you just mentioned is public consultation, questions around public consultation. The IT minister said that the bill had gone through a sort of significant amount of public consultation, referenced dozens of organizations that were consulted, dozens of ministries, as many as 24,000, I suppose, individual consultations. Is it your view that, that there was an opportunity for India generally to weigh in on this legislation before uh, it came to this point? I'll come in there, right? Because I think it's also important to understand that this process has been going on for for a lot longer, right? Now, yes, there were previous drafts of, of a previously bill under a, a previous government will have been handled by the Ministry of, of Personnel. But this particular process, I think you could trace it back to 2017, where you had the Puttaswami judgment, right, which reaffirmed the right to privacy as as a fundamental right in India. And since then, we've had multiple versions of a data protection bill, one put out by the Justice Shri Krishna Committee, one that was then introduced by METI, by the Ministry of Electronic Information Technology in Parliament in 2019. That was then referred to a joint parliamentary committee or joint committee on, of parliament on the, I think it, it was called PDP at the time, the Personal Data Protection Bill. They presented a draft version in, in 2021. Now, through a lot of these phases, there was the opportunity to provide input, right? But what I will say is that through these iterations, people have pointed to the same structural issues with the bill, similar set of structural issues throughout, right? In terms of the scope of the exemptions that have been granted to the union government and and to government uh, instrumentalities in general, the independent data protection board and a couple of other things, right? And these have retained, they have been retained through multiple iterations of the bill and unfortunately in many instances gotten worse, right? Uh, so it's one thing to say that, yes, you, you, there have been opportunities to provide feedback about the bill, but if you're consistently seeing that the concerns you're raising are not only not being addressed, they're actually getting worse, right? So then you it, it does leave you with a lot of questions. Right? And I think for a lot of people who've had concerns, I think around the bill, I think at this point, I'm being a little flippant about it, but at this point, when we look into a mirror, we probably see a broken record, right? Because we've been seeing similar things for multiple years over the structural issues with the bill, and a lot of them really haven't uh, have, haven't gotten better. I, I just want to also make a quick point on this particular consultation, which the minister also referred to, right? The report that uh, that Aditi referred, I think, gave some specific numbers in terms of 45 government departments and ministries. And I think the number quoted in the report was 21,666 comments. The thing to note is that with the public consultation for the 2022 bill, what the ministry also said is that, hey, we will not put out these comments in the public domain, right? Uh, And under a request under the Right to Information Act, right, the equivalent of the Freedom of Information Act in the US, they then denied those consultation responses essentially on the ground, I'm paraphrasing, but on the grounds of that, look, we said we won't provide it, therefore we are not going to, we're not going to provide it, right? But then also makes it difficult for you to understand what position different stakeholders uh, took on, on different crucial aspects of the bill. It's also difficult to understand why certain clauses seem to have gone from 
uh, certain approaches have gone from what they were in the draft bill to you know, 2022 draft to the 2023 version of the bill. So all of that is is unclear, right? So it's one thing to say that hey, there's been opportunity to provide to provide feedback, but if you're not listening to that feedback and you're not being transparent about the type of feedback you've received, that that rings a little hollow to me. So when it comes to Aditi, I want to ask you about a question, and maybe that sort of slightly relates to what Pratik is talking about about the degree of influence on this and the degree to which you understand what the forces that were acting on the legislature as it sort of went through different permutations. What about industry? A Bloomberg reporter called this bill a boon to Google and Meta. I guess first, do you see it that way? And do you suspect that there was a heavy hand of industry in this final version? The short answer to your question is yes. This is a very industry-friendly bill. If we look at how the bill has evolved from the 2018 version of the bill, which is what the committee, the Justice B and Sri Krishna committee had produced, to now we have undergone five iterations. And each successive iteration is better for the industry and worse for the society at large. So the balance has always been tilting in favor of digital economy and uh, technologization, I would say, rather than uh, in favor of protecting the right to privacy of citizens. And that is also evidenced by the fact how both the senior minister, Ashwini Vaishnav, as well as the junior minister, uh, Rajiv Chandrasekhar, have been talking about this bill. That this bill will empower companies to make use of data and therefore shore up India's digital decade. That's the catchword. That's the catchphrase you have. So if you look between 2018 and now, some of the issues that have been resolved include issues related to regulatory overburden on data fiduciaries. That's practically gone. There are basically no compliance guidelines left for data fiduciaries. Then the question of data localization. We went from a hard data localization to a soft data localization to a confused data localization, and now we have a blacklist. So what's going to happen in this blacklist approach, presumably, is that countries like China, Pakistan, of course, will not be our partners. But countries such as the EU and US will A process hasn't been laid out. Will we go through an adequacy check as the EU does? We don't know. But even if we do, the other bills are definitely better. The only issue that's left for the industry is the issue around uh, children's data. And that's an issue that we are facing globally, whether it be in COPPA, whether it be in the EU. It's not clear how age verification would work. Would age verification lead to erosion of privacy of, say, not just children, but their guardians and their parents. So that's an issue, but that's a universal one. Now, what has remained same, almost the same between 2018 and uh, now, is what the exemptions look like. And what has worsened over time is the safeguards that were imposed on the government. What's worsened is the independence of what was earlier the Data Protection Authority. It has now been turned into a board. So it has been divested of all rulemaking powers. So between 2018 and now, we have seen a shift where in 2018, bulk of the rulemaking powers, that is the delegated legislation that Pratik was talking about, lay with the Data Protection Authority. Now, there's no rulemaking power with the Data Protection Authority. And I believe there's only, uh, there are only two sections where Data Protection Authority has advisory role to the central government. Otherwise, it acts an, as an adjudicating body. And even when it comes to its adjudication, there is this 
interesting concept of a voluntary undertaking that the 2022 version introduced and which has been retained in almost its entirety. That's the concept of, as I said, the voluntary undertaking, which is where the data protection board finds a data fiduciary guilty of a personal data breach. The data fiduciary's representative gives a voluntary undertaking that, oh, we are sorry, we won't do it in future, and they get away scot-free. So there's that. What has worsened? How we envision consent. That has uh, worsened. What has worsened? We are not talking about harms at all. We are talking about only loss and gain in financial terms. The data principle is no longer at the center of the bill. It's the data fiduciary, which is a huge problem when you're dealing with a legislation that's supposed to protect a fundamental right. In terms of what's worsened is also introduction of two other clauses. One is the changes to the Right to Information Act, which basically now says that if there's any personal information that can be given out, the public information officer can deny you that information. And this is information related to the government. So how would this play out? I'm looking for the educational qualification of a prime ministerial candidate. I want confirmation on whether or not he or she is actually qualified and what those qualifications are. Those would be denied because it's his or her personal uh, data. Therefore, the university as a data fiduciary cannot violate that sanct, uh, sacrosanct bond. Another one is that the journalistic exemption has been removed. How will that play out? They'll haul a journalist like me up and say, where did you get that information? Expose your sources. Otherwise, we'll impose a penalty on you. Now, when it comes to how does it compare to EU's GDPR, which is widely understood to be, I won't say the gold standard right now, but rather the least bad option we have in the world, is that GDPR actually puts right to privacy at center and it puts the data principle at center. So even though yesterday and on Monday, the minister, uh, Mr. Ashwini Vaishnav, kept on saying that GDPR has 16 exemptions and India's DPDP bill has only six. That is actually patently false. He's referring to Article 23 of the GDPR, which has a list of 10 exemptions. Now, the interesting part is that all these exemptions are discrete, whereas in India's version of the bill, they've used comma. So that's why... You have six listed exemptions, but if you look at each of the subclauses, there are actually many more. And the critical part of it is that the second paragraph of Article 23 actually constrains member states about how these exemptions are to be implemented. It mandates member states to introduce provisions around necessity, proportionality, scope of how such data will be processed, purposes for processing such data, deleting such data concerning themselves with harms and risks associated with the rights of the data principle. All of that is absolutely absent from the, the Indian bill. And uh, Kamesh has spoken a bit about the lack of independent data protection authority. And that's a huge problem. EU's GDPR still has an independent data protection authority in each of the member states, and then an independent data protection board on top of it, which is sitting at the EU level. Now, in India... A number of MPs, including yesterday, raised a concern about how perhaps we need a federated structure for the Data Protection Board. Because how is a central authority supposed to deal with so many grievances related to, say, just data breaches, because that's what the Data Protection Board has now been uh, consigned to. And the idea was it will still be central, centrally driven because information technology is a central su subject. It's not a state subject. How would that work out? And in Europe, it also becomes easier because of this federated structure, because things get escalated 
only if there's an issue with a member state's DPA. We don't have that option. Gamesh, I want to let you perhaps respond to some of the things you've heard. You wrote on Twitter that to some extent, this bill, you said, I think is, quote, an important step towards establishing privacy in India and enacting a data protection law. Is there anything good about this? Quickly coming in just before we move on the difference itself. If we could actually look at is like GDPR is for data, as I mentioned, like personal data. And here it is the digital personal data. So there is a difference in terms of which data is protected. Only if the data has been digitized, that falls within the ambit of the bill, which may be not the case with the you know GDPR itself or like many of the data protection regulations available out there. In a way, it is fine. Because like the problems within the digital is different from how you actually like handle data manually. So like, I guess like that differentiation is fine, but like maybe as we move forward, we have to also consider what we have to do for the manual data as well. But quickly moving on into some of the key aspects, as we act says that this has become like a six years of a journey in terms of having a data protection bill for India. So I guess this is a start. And as Pratik and Aditi has also mentioned is that we have so much battles more to get through because so much of power is given to the central government in terms of rule making. So I guess that way, actually, um, we still have a long battle in terms of each and every clause to be dissected, right? So... In that way, I guess like that's a one A, I would say in terms of a start is very important rather than anything present there, because since we recognized our, our right to privacy, we still don't have a legislation. So it's really important that we do this. And secondly, I guess like it's a very important aspect is that like some of the key nuances of the bill has changed over evolution and like also I would say like an advocacy success in certain ways is especially I would love to talk about the data localization angle as like a lot of people in the panel also spoke about is that like we started from a supremely very stringent very hardcore data localization but since ever since then a lot of research and a lot of expertise has gone into the picture where actually we come to know that like the data security aspect or the data protection aspect is agnostic to the location. Just because I like store the data within India doesn't mean my data is very secure and protected. So certain nuances has been like gotten into clarity. And this also adds to the individuals of in terms of this balance, right? How are you actually going to balance privacy while actually also unlocking the data? for the value creation itself, which actually at this moment, like EU is also like thinking about in terms of though we have a stringent data protection, like now it's time that we also have to know how to unlock the potentials of the data as well. So certain balances has been like brought into the picture. Then coming to the children data, this is like a battle still. One of the key aspects of the difference there is the age of consent is 18 which is like a little bit like different from most of the legislations out there, which is like 13, 15 and et cetera and stuff. Plus I also like, I like want to like just point out is that is there also a lot of evolution has happened in terms of like how we actually approach certain levels of like age gating aspect itself is right. Because age gating comes in between like how internet as network network works 
right? Like also adding to my data localization point also like brings some of the internet enablers not to work. Certainly like these things have changed, like especially within this bill, if I come back to the age uh, gating aspect itself, there are going to be exemptions. So such exemptions were not like very well clear in the previous version of the bill. So certain class of the certain class of data fiduciaries will be given exemptions from, you know, the additional obligations of processing the data. But the one crazy or like one key aspects, I don't know whether like it has been like spoken a lot is that now that additional obligation for the children has been also extended to the person with disability. So that's a little bit of a concern because how are you even going to identify somebody is disabled in a digital platform? And also you haven't defined what is disability means within the bill. And also like, how can you actually extend a um, additional obligation, which is for children, for a disabled person who could be above 18? So these are like the some of the integrities that comes into the picture, which is like within the concerns within the children data itself. It sounds like there's just an enormous amount that's still to be worked out in the rulemaking where the rubber meets the road. And it sounds like your two organizations, Kamesh Pratik, you'll engage in that. Aditi, you'll be covering it. I want to just step back a little bit and maybe try to contextualize this for my listeners, how this development sort of fits in the broader scheme of what's happening with regard to tech policy in India. Pratik, you made some mention of that earlier about the sort of general thrust of things lately. Hey, from the perspective over here in the States, when we read about some legislative development with regard to tech in India, it isn't necessarily good news. It's normally bad news. At least that's the way it's portrayed to us. You've mentioned, of course, the increased sort of centralization of power in the executive. You've mentioned fears of overreach. We see lots of reports about uh, concerns on uh, censorship, internet shutdowns, things of that nature. Let me just pose the question to the group. How would you situate this in the broader uh, scheme of things when it comes to tech policy at the moment? Maybe Pratik, I'll come back to you. So if you go back to, I think it was August 3rd, 2022, right, where where the union minister, Ashwini Vaishnav, actually got up and said, and Ask raise the motion for the motion for withdrawal of the the previous iteration of the bill, right? Where he mentioned the need for a comprehensive regulatory framework, right? And something that's been referenced a, a number of times, which has, depending on the time you, you read the quote, I think some elements of this has shifted, but it broadly consists of an updated telecommunication regulation, the data protection regulation an overhaul of the IT Act, which is being called the, the Digital India Bill, and a framework for data governance, essentially sharing non-personal data. And in some cases, you, you might hear mention of a cybersecurity policy in there as well, right? There are these multiple moving components that are, in, are at different stages of, of progress right now. From our vantage point, most of them come with the baggage, at least from our perspective, of increasing the amount of discretion and control that with the union government, right? So if you look at, for example, the telecommunication bill, and I know we haven't gone into that, but broadly the way it, the way it sought to define telecommunication services was, was so broad that it could include 
anything on 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 the internet as well. The intent seemingly was to capture your messaging application, etc., within that and potentially impose licensing requirements on them. But it the language ultimately used was, was so vague that they, that they could wake up tomorrow and say, "Hey, you need to come under this licensing framework." I, I should point out though that some recent reports now suggest that. over the course of last week it might have been approved by by the union cabinet and reportedly we haven't seen the draft we don't know for sure but reportedly there have been some tweaks to the way telecommunication services have been defined and maybe it, it may not be as expansive anymore but we'll have to i think wait to see that draft in public right but broadly when i you know there there is a state of flux right right now in terms of the policies that are going to define the next part of quote unquote india's decade we'll we'll have to see how that how that pans out but i think like i said there are, there are concerns from our perspective in terms of with this control and discussion if you look at the broader political context or if you look at the evolution of the it rules 2021 and then through subsequent amendment including the most recent one right derisively called the fact checking amendment where the union government wants to give a notified authority a notified body the power to flag content as fake or false because that's currently under under challenge in the in the bombay high court but broadly they want the ability to say what is fake or false concerning government business government business itself is not defined so you you could see how something like that could be misused right which is why we're looking at some of these some of these trends with with concern but i'll just pause quickly in terms i'll just wrap up quickly in terms of broadly if you look at the motivating factors right i think you could point to national security being one of them that's something that's always as always we've discussed you i think there is a welfare aspect to, to it as well in terms of digitalization and if the talk about digital public infrastructure which we haven't really which we haven't really discussed mesh i'll come to you pratik described you know i suppose the commanding heights of tech policy in play at the moment what's your perspective just adding or complementing bodavalik pratikas mentioned let's look at from three layers curve right within the tech policy ecosystem of india itself one as pratikas mentioned very clearly data protection bill is one component we are revamping the telecommunication regulation we are also revamping the it act to digital india act and also like certainly like some changes are coming within ipcs and etc to get into the tech space so at one level this is happening where the digital laws and the digital policies itself is evolving right at the central level then you have next facet of things is the sectoral regulations so within the sectors if i can say try or which is like the telecommunication regulator of india rbi they are also like actually like coming up with their own ways of regulating their you know spaces if i could give an give an example is that is rbi is also like thinking about or it's already in the process of fintech regulations right the financial tech regulations and try recently put out a recommendation paper on ai the recommendation on like how to like regulate artificial intelligence within the country so sectoral regulators are also like on their spree of coming up with like certain levels of tech policies and then you move on to the states so as like pratikas mentioned like india has been pioneering a lot of like digital public infrastructures right and like many of these things fall within 
state and central list. So the states also are like coming up with their own ways of utilizing the data that they actually harper over and like actually also come up with some principles in terms of how they will be using those data and securing it, like Tamil Nadu, Maharashtra, and et cetera, which are like the Indian states. So state government also is like simultaneously doing certain level of like aspects. So there are like three different aspects are happening, but like one chain or the key for all of these things is coordination and interregulatory level of cooperation, which is needed, which is not really the case at this moment, right? If I come back to the digital policy landscape itself, so how the telecommunication regulation, which is getting revamped, how the data protection regulation and Digital India Act is going to all interact with each other is not clear. Right. These are all the components which add to one particular aspect, but we are not very clear. Similarly, how such digital policies will interact with the sectoral regulations is also not very clear. So if the bill though says that the, the data protection bill states that is that the bill comes over other sectoral regulation except for the data localization part, cross-border data transfer part. But Rest of the things the bill says that the data protection bill will be over others. But this is easier said than how it operates within the Indian jurisprudence. And third thing, as like Aditi also, also mentioned, is about like the India's quasi-federal structure, right? Like centers and state have roles when it comes to using the data. But like where the role of the state government comes into the picture is also questioned at this moment within the data protection aspect or the digital policy aspect itself. Aditi, I'll come to you. I'll ask you perhaps to comment on that broader question that Pratik and Kamesh have just got into with a broader direction of tech policy uh, in India. Uh, but also maybe I'll ask you to perhaps put it through a different lens, which is if you're a citizen, you're someone just living your life in one of India's great cities where you all are or out in the countryside, what changes after the president signs this particular bill into law? I'll address your second part of the question first. What changes after this is signed into the law? It'll take some time for the rules to be made and for it to be implemented in earnest. Yesterday, the minister said that that could be as soon as six to 10 months. So we're not looking at a two-year timeline. What changes as a citizen is there will be three clauses, three sections that will affect normal citizens, common citizens the most. And that's something what that Pratik and I have talked about. One is the idea of processing without consent, which is the section called legitimate uses. There's this particular section there, I think it's 77B or 72B, I forget, which basically says that the state or any of its instrumentalities, in order to give you any kind of service, any kind of benefit, any kind of certificate, license or permit, can use any data that you have previously given to it, or it's an OR clause, or it can use any data that it already has on you in digital form or that was submitted in analog form and then digitized. So what that means is, even if I'm using the road outside, which is public infrastructure out and out, which is a public service, which is a government service, my data can be used in any way, even if it's not required. If I go to a government hospital, any data that they've collected on me can be used against me. And that I intentionally use the word against because the power asymmetry between a citizen, one citizen and the government is so huge that the kind of scope for misuse and abuse is 
entirely to rabbit which is why any legislation is supposed to uh, protect the citizens and not just from the excesses of a private individual or a private entity but also from its own government and this bill fails to do that in its entirety now along with that the exemptions are so sweeping they allow the government not only to exempt any of its own agencies from any and all of the provisions of the bill they also allow it to exempt any private data fiduciary or a data processor as it deems fit so what this means is that tomorrow if it's using the services of say a company like cambridge analytica the government could say oh they're be exempt why the reasons are not required to be told to the citizenry by the law and that's a problem we have all seen the repercussions of that over the last i would say 7 years across the world starting from 2016 in india and uh, this was from 2014 uh, coming to the question of looking at it from a macro perspective we are heading to our national elections next year generally we expect a greater centralization of powers to happen and that is also evidenced by how productive quote unquote productive our parliament turned in this last one week on monday they passed four bills in less than 4 hours that's ridiculous you can't pass four laws in 4 hours what kind of discussion could have happened even if they are like tiny laws there's no discussion that's happening and that kind of centralization that kind of reserving power for the central government even divesting state governments of a lot of powers is being seen even across tech policy and what's also been seen is that some of the steps taken are very ad hoc in nature so there need to a lot of uncertainty case in point the notification that came out last week about laptop imports there was a notification that the director general of foreign trade had released and said that there will be restrictions on laptop imports personal computers etc etc until and unless you have a license to import that immediately led to a, a number of international companies facing problems with customs it led to them stopping their exports to india and then 3 days later the government reversed uh, its stance and said oh you have 3 months to comply what was the need for that uncertainty semiconductor mission is something that the government is focusing a lot on and that goes to the hardware question that also deals with the larger geopolitics of technology at large where the world at large is looking for more resilient supply chain networks when china is not an option or when a war like the russian ukraine war breaks out what do you do even then there's so much uncertainty about how it will play out for instance in order to cater to uh, micron the american chip making company there's a great article in the ken that was published yesterday the indian government tweaked the rules so what rules may apply to you may not apply to me may not apply to a corporate and that's a huge problem we are heading towards a license raj we see that in the telecom bill as pratik mentioned where even services such as whatsapp etc would have to apply for licenses how is the internet supposed to work there and just reiterating what kamesh and pratik have already said which is about there's a combination of sectoral regulation and public welfare so you see that with the national digital health mission as well for instance so national digital health mission is supposedly for uh, public welfare purposes but at the same time it's a very sectoral kind of initiative by the indian government dealing with health but because it's digital in nature it deals with technology policy the entire debate around digital public infrastructure which has been one of the cornerstones of india's representation as the host of g20 which has been talked about a lot in india 
is the digital public infrastructure. How is that going to play out? Who's going to control it? What does it look like? We have an example in UPI, but the private companies aren't making money from the infrastructure itself. They're making money from the data that they collect. So those are larger questions. And just reiterating what Pratik said about how national security and maintenance of public order have been key concerns for this government. What this government has done through different laws, not just in tech policy, but generally as well, is that it has normalized the state of exception. In the state of exception, the central government can reserve for itself a lot of powers that it won't have otherwise. Now, that state of exception has been normalized. So you have riots breaking out on the borders of Delhi. It's a state of exception, internet shutdown. You have riots breaking out in Manipur, internet shutdown. You're not going to deal with what's causing them. Because the moment you shut down information, you shut information dissemination, you shut down communications, you have control. And that's what it all boils down to eventually. And to end on a slightly positive note, you asked me if there's anything positive about this bill. I would say there's one positive right that they've introduced, which I don't think I've seen in any other legislation around the world, which is the right to nominate in case of incapacitation or after death, which is an interesting right. It's not clear how it would play out, but I haven't seen any other legislation talk about that. Just quickly coming in, Justin, I guess just I had some couple of points that I guess like we didn't discuss and which maybe have to be discussed which is like also falls within the differentiation of what the, the other legislations does and how India sees it. A, we actually have two provisions within the new version of the bill, which actually gives the power to the central government to seek any information from the data fiduciaries, intermediaries, and the board itself. And the second one is of the clause 37, which actually can like order content blocking, which I'm not sure whether it's present in any other legislation. I guess like briefly China has some version of it somewhere I've heard. I have not tested it, but yeah, so it has somewhere. But these are like two different options, two different like provisions has been like recently added in the new version of the bill, which was not put for consideration. The third thing is that of the difference itself is the publicly available personal data. So we are moving into a paradigm where we have artificial intelligence and generative AIs, which actually scrapes data from all over the place to give you the solutions that they actually have. In Europe, if you see publicly available personal data is not considered to be a personal information under the GDPR. But in India's act, like a difference is that is like only if Kamesh as me as a data principal has put my personal data outside over a blog or over an article, that will be allowed to be used by the data fiduciaries without the consent. Otherwise, any other publicly available information out there has to be like consented by the individuals. So that is like a key difference, which is like actually present there. But that also brings into the question of can consent as an artifact itself can be the way forward for us to have any privacy regulations, right? Because within the generative AI context, like how are we even going to have consent artifact manifested or implemented? So maybe we have to move a little bit and see innovations. Third aspect is that is of, we have been talking a lot about like Indian context and et cetera and stuff. But as I was mentioning, like for internet survival data have to move. 
So from the, and there's borderless, which also was emphasized by the minister yesterday in the Rajya Sabha. But uh, though we have our own regulation, how this regulation is going to stand at the international level when we are actually like planning to apply for adequacy or anything is still a debatable with like various flaws, like as Aditi was like uh, mentioned many times in terms of exemptions and etc., which was the case for Shams to happen twice. So we need to like, one has to wait and see how this legislation is going to like fare when it comes to like interaction with the other international legislations which are there in terms of like digital trade and data transfers and etc. So with that, there are a lot of laudable clause, obviously within the bill, but there are so many things which has been there from the previous versions of the bill still there in this version of the bill, though we have come six years ago. And uh, also there are some key new things have been added into the bill, which is brings both positive and negative concerns. Thank you, Kamesh. Pratik, last word. I'll just answer your specific question about what happens the moment it's, let's say, signed and then notified by by the Gazette, right? At that particular moment, to be a little flippant about it, not so many good things and quite a few bad things, right? And I'll just briefly elaborate in the sense that whatever we've discussed as, as, as some of the positive things about in terms of obligations on fiduciary, etc., none of that kicks in at that moment, right? All, all that is going to take some time, time to kick in. But what will be effective immediately are the exemptions on the state government, on, on, on state instrumentalities and their ability to use your information. The duties that have been imposed on, on data principles, which is, I think, unique to India. To my knowledge, I have not seen any other data protection legislation do this. Right? I, I, I could go on because I think we, we've covered a lot of the, the not-so-positive aspects of it. But that's what I'll just say, right? In terms of the exact moment when this is signed into law. We still have to wait for the positive aspects of it to start taking shape. But as it so happens, the, the thing that we're unhappy about, a lot of those are going to affect pretty much immediately. Well, I know that each view will be bringing a critical eye as this continues to unfold, as the rulemaking begins. And I hope that I can have each of you back on this podcast and on the pages of Tech Policy Press in the future. Aditi, Kamesh, Pratik, thank you so much. Thank you, Justin. Thank Thank you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Press.